Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to open them up to Matthew chapter 27. We'll be in Matthew chapter 27 verses, well, we'll read verses 51 through 56, but we're really going to emphasize the first verse, verse 51. Now, one of the ways when the Maybe sometimes when you read the Old Testament or even the New Testament in the book of Acts, the sermons that they give, they are sermons, they, they seem a bit strange, you think. They, they go through all of this and then finally they, they get to a point. Well, what they're doing is, is retracing the history of Israel so that they can see its fulfillment in Christ. And in, in a sense, we're going to do that this morning as we look at these verses. So if you wonder the, the trajectory we're on, that's it. So, Matthew 27, verses 51 through 56. It says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, and among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would exalt your Son, and your Gospel this morning, that we would know what it means to be reconciled to God, that we would see the price of it and the great and many and precious promises fulfilled in the Scripture we just read. Lord, help us to believe, to hear, to understand Your Word This morning, that we might be drawn nearer to you, that we might know you better than we do, and be made that much more fit for eternity from your truth and your word this morning. It's in your name we ask for help, because none of the things we seek can be done on our own, but they come from you and for you and by you. So, Lord, help us this morning. Help us to hear. Help me to preach. In your name we pray. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created light and separated it from darkness. He created the sea and the sky, and then He separated the waters and the land. On the fourth day, He made the sun and the moon and the stars... Then the birds that filled the sky and the fish that filled the sea. And finally, on day six, he made all of the animals on the land and he created man and woman. And in all of that creation account, what you, what you hear on repeat throughout is that it is good. And for God to say that something is good, it's, it's not like when you or I say something is good. When you or I say something is, is good, we mean this is pleasing or, or I like this or it's not bad. But when God says something is good, it means it is absolutely perfect in every conceivable way without flaw. The, 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 Genesis 1 is telling us that the world God made was flawless. And at the center of this perfect world, He placed a garden. In the wilderness, if the wilderness outside of the garden was spectacularly perfect, then how great must the Garden of Eden been? And we can only imagine, but what little description we have of it says it was filled with all kinds of trees. It's really the only descriptions we have of the garden, a place that is lush, to be sure, there's water there, and lots of fruit-bearing trees, trees of all kinds. It's a wonderful place. And and when you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, even though there's very little information about what the world was like before the fall, what it was like after creation, before Adam and Eve's sin, 
There are two things that stand out. One, and we've looked at it already, is that it was good. What God made was good. It was paradise. It was perfect paradise. No room for improvement. And the second thing that you see is that God is there. Have you ever thought about Genesis 3, 8? It says God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. This is not just a description of what's happening on this particular day, but it's a description of the way of life in the pre-fall world. God was there. And not in a, in a purely spiritual way either, because it says Adam and Eve heard Him walking through the garden. God walked with them in a real, uh, physical, manifest way. God walked in the world that He had made with Adam and Eve. It's almost presented as a routine. In the cool of the evening, He would walk with them in the garden. That's what characterizes the world before the fall. Perfection and the presence of God. Why is that the only emphasis? We have a lot of questions about what the world was like before the fall. Why does the Bible put the emphasis on these two things? Well, there are many reasons, but one of them is to show us that this Garden of Eden is a type of temple. It's a type of temple. It really is. Because what is a temple? A temple is a place, you say, where, well, it's a place where you worship God. Well, yes, but why worship at a temple? Why not worship somewhere else? Why not worship anywhere at all? Why a temple and why not in a field? What's significant about a temple? And the answer is that the temple is the earthly residence or the symbolic residence of deity on earth. It's the place where God is near. But the garden, it's not just that God is near or that His presence could be felt. God was there. And Eden is a temple. It's an earthly meeting place between God and man. That's what it was created to be. That's what it was made for. But that's not what happened, is it? Adam sinned. He broke the single command that God gave him. And in that sin, he committed an act of cosmic treason. He sins against the good and gracious God. The God who had given him all things, placed him in a perfect world. The God who told him, warned him that on the day you eat of it, that tree, that one tree that's off limits, on the day you eat of it, you will die. And when God finds out what happens, Adam and Eve take hold of the tree and eat. God finds out, listen, if you ever want an example of God being merciful and slow to anger, it's right here in the beginning. Because when God finds out, He does curse them. But in all of the curses, part of those curses is actually a promise to undo the very curse that He pronounces. He'll send someone to deliver them. And God sends them away. They're exiled out of the garden. He has to send them away. He is perfect. He cannot allow sin to remain in His presence. But they don't die. They live. And they go on to live and have children. And the reason they live is because God covers their sin. Because before they're sent away, in verse 21 of Genesis 3, He, God, sacrifices an animal to make clothing for them and covers, uh, covers their shame. He provides a substitute for them. Do you know that the first blood shed in creation is shed not by Cain, but by the hand of God as He makes clothing for the nakedness of His children. And then they're driven out of the garden. But the whole picture really reveals that God isn't doing it furiously. Is he? He is preaching through his actions. He is making promises to Adam and Eve when he sends them out that one day he's going to undo it, that he's going to cover their sin. That he is working for them. I mean, you can learn a lot about someone by how they react when they are wronged. You can learn a lot about God when you see how he responds here when he is dishonored and disgraced and attacked. But there are two things in particular that stand out that you learn about God here. And these two things continue on through the whole of Scripture. One 
It is good to be in the presence of God. But, two, he cannot tolerate our sin. God's desire is for us to be in his presence, for us to be his people, for him to be our God. It's what we were made for. But sin has wounded that relationship. Sin has separated us from God. And until that sin is canceled, there can be no real and lasting reconciliation. And so in Genesis 3, 23 and 24 says, Therefore, God sent them out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Man had sinned, and for their crime, they must be banished and sent out. God simply cannot overlook their sin. He, he can cover it temporarily, but the, bulls, uh, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away the sins of man. And so Adam and Eve are sent into exile. Now listen, the exile is not from a bountiful earth. And it's not from a lush garden. And the banishment isn't even from paradise. That's not the point. They are cut off from the presence of God. Sin has made an impassable chasm between God and man. They are forbidden to return to the tree of life. And they're guarding the way. Right? The symbol of God's unapproachability. A kind of warning sign that, that says, Stay back and keep out. It comes in the form of an angel with a flaming sword that points in all directions. You know, often we think of angels as cute, you know, Cupid-esque beings that float around and, and hover, all right? Creatures that belong in a, in a collection on a shelf or in cards. But in the Bible, above all else, angels are terrifying creatures. You have a description of them in Ezekiel. Maybe you remember the description in Ezekiel. They've got four faces, the head of a, of a man, a bull, a bird, and uh, a lion, covered in eyes. Terrifying to behold. Which is why the first words angels speak whenever they show up is do not be afraid. Because if you ever saw one, listen, you're not going to be reaching for your camera. You're not going to be thinking about, oh, how can I tell this to my neighbor? You're not going to get a warm feeling inside. If an angel showed up to you, the one thing you would feel is terror. They wield the sword of divine separation. These angels, cherubim in the Bible, they are the guardians of the presence of God. You wonder what they are in Scripture? That's it. They're the ones who prevent what is unclean or what is sinful from entering into His presence. That's their job. I think of Uzzah. You remember Uzzah? He reaches out. He touches the ark and lays his hand on the throne of God. And it says God burned against him and he dropped down dead. And if you wonder, how did God strike him dead? He sent an angel down to take his life. A cherub. They are the ones who cut humanity off from the presence of the Lord God. And this is the universal human condition. Cut off from God. We are separated from Him because of our sins. But I'm convinced that the word that most captures what it means to sin is the word fallen. Fallen. Fallen from grace. Fallen away from God. But you may wonder, why fallen? Why not lawless or immoral or or unjust, or, or why not just the word sinful? Why, why does the word fallen capture what it means to sin? Well, consider this. We were made in the image and likeness of God Almighty. What does that mean, to be made in the image of God? Scholars and theologians debate this a lot, but one thing that is undeniably true is that we were created to be morally perfect like God is perfect. We were made to be like Him. That's what you were created for, to be like God. So much so that if an alien, if there were such a thing, but if one came down from outer space, landed here on planet Earth, got out of his ship, looked around at all of the people, everyone alive, every man, every woman, every child, you know what they would be able to see? You know what they would be able to say? Honestly? 
they would be able to look around and say, this is what God is like. Can you imagine looking around at human interaction and relationships and how they, how they, how they function in the world and being able to say today, that's what God is like? That's what you were made for. So that if the alien would come down and go into your house, he'd be able to look at you and your family and say with confidence and with honesty, this must be what God is like. Because that's what you were made for. That's the high standard that every human being was, was called to, created for. And when you think of that, how far have you fallen? That's why sin is described as falling short of the glory of God. Right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not that we have sinned and therefore we fall short. It's we have sinned by falling short of the glory of God. And you say, what's the glory of God? It is His perfections, His holiness, His total righteousness. And to fall short of that glory is to fail to be perfect like He is. If you're, if you're aiming at a bullseye and you miss, you come up short. You fall short of the intended target. The target for everyone in this room, what you were created to be, is perfect like God is perfect. And so if you want to know what sin is, it's much more than just transgression or omission of the law. It is that, but it's more than that, much more. It is a failure, a falling short of being and responding exactly like God in every circumstance and situation and every conceivable way. Well, listen, it's not as though we, when we fell, scuffed our knees. And it's not as though we've just broken a few commandments. The problem is that everything you and I do is full of sin. You know, there may be moments in your life where you can say, well, I've kept this command, or I've kept that command, and I haven't sinned. I've done this, and I've done that. Listen, that's a very superficial understanding of sin. You want to know what it means to sin? Ask yourself, when was the last time you were perfect, like God, for even a fraction of a second? Never. Not once. This is how deeply sin is rooted in us and how its corruption has taken hold. We have never done anything but sinned. There was no higher height from which we could have fallen and we fell all the way to the bottom. So what does God do? It's almost unbelievable when you're reading Scripture. He still loves His people. He still wants them to know Him. He wants them to know that it's wonderful to live with Him, but because of their sin, they, they couldn't. There, there could be no open access, but then God of His own volition, without any prompting, He comes and He makes a way. He made a, a limited way. He made a means for His people to dwell with Him and for Him to dwell with His people. Now you remember the Exodus, right? God brings a people out of Egypt. He saves the offspring of Abraham for Himself to be their God and to make them into a nation who loves Him. You remember, he, he parts the Red Sea and leads them through and delivers them from slavery and gives them His laws. He makes them His own. And then in Exodus, uh, starting in Exodus 20, he, he gives them instructions for how to worship Him. He gives them instructions for how to live as His people. And He tells them how they're to sacrifice. And He tells them how they're to approach Him. He tells them how the priesthood would function. Central to it all, central to life with God, is the tabernacle. Do you know what that word tabernacle means? It doesn't mean a fancy tent. It means dwelling place. And God is giving Moses instructions on how to build a place for him to live among a sinful people that he loves. So that God's presence will be the, the rallying point, the central point for his people once again. And so the people, they would set up their tents all around the tabernacle. 
But God was too holy to dwell among the tents of his people. And the tabernacle would be surrounded by a courtyard where the Levites would inhabit and they would do their work, but God would not dwell there among a sinful yet set-apart Levites. And then the tabernacle itself, there were two large rooms, and in one room the, the priests would work. But God was too holy even to dwell among the priests. So there in the very back of the tabernacle, in a perfect cube, 15 by 15 by 15, was the Holy of Holies where the ark sat. And it was the place where God, His manifest presence, would dwell on earth. And it was separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain or by a veil. Exodus 21, 31 through 33, it says, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and finely twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully woven into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, the hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. God will live with them. They are His people. They are blessed above all nations in the earth, but they still cannot approach Him. They're still separated by a veil, and the veil is beautiful. It's woven of blue and purple and, and scarlet like a sunset, but something else is woven all over it as well. Cherubim. And they aren't there as cute angel decorations. They're embroidered with swords drawn and aflame. And they are warning signs. They're keep out signs to all of the people that, so that, that they know that even though God dwells beyond this curtain, and even though He is near to them, and it is good that He is there, nevertheless, because of their sin, if they enter into that presence, they will surely die. And the cherubim are the watchmen, the sentinels protecting the glory of God and warning would-be intruders, stop here. Go beyond this line and we will strike you down. It's a dangerous blessing to belong to God. And its danger was only amplified at Mount Sinai. You remember what God said to Moses when He gave the Ten Commandments? What kind of atmosphere that took place in? God Himself spoke from the mountain and it terrified the people. In fact, after He speaks, they say, this is good, but please don't let it ever happen again. Well, to prepare the people for His coming, He gives Moses some instructions. He says, Moses, the whole mountain where I'm going to come down to, Mount Sinai, cord it off. Put up a barricade around it so that nobody comes near. And Moses... Don't just barricade it, but you set up archers and marksmen all around the, the, the mountain. And if anyone comes near, man, woman, child, animal, if they approach the barricade, if they look like they're going to go through, Moses, you give these marksmen orders, shoot to kill. Because if this barricade is breached... If an unclean, uncorrupted, uh, sinful, unprepared creature enters into my presence, it will so provoke my justice that I will pour out my vengeance on the entire community of Israel and they will be wiped out. If this barrier is breached, it will so offend, God tells them, His perfections that He will burst out against them all like a, like a dam. Pent up the water behind the dam. The dam is good. It provides power. But if you breach it, it floods. And I point this out because it's not that God is vindictive or cruel. Even by His nature, unapproachable. It's because the severity of our sin and the offense of our sin separates us from Him. And so the more His presence is manifest, the nearer He comes, the more dangerous sinful people are in. And this whole ordeal, it's, it's an expression of both, at the same time, God's desire to be with His people and the separation sin has caused. This severity, this, this harsh zero-tolerance policy is to protect the people as they're being blessed by the presence of God. 
It's like the sun in the sky. We, by the sun in the sky, the light it provides, we see all things clearly. It gives light to the earth. It warms us. It gives life. Without the sun, we would descend into darkness, we would freeze, and life as we know it would come to an end were there no sun shining in the sky. Now who would say that the sun is not a blessing from God? Yet, if you stare into it, you will go blind. And if you attempt, if you could, to get within a million miles of the sun, you would be burned up into nothing. And it's the same with God. He gives life. He gives light. He melts the hearts of stone. And yet, if you were to see Him in His glory as you are today, it would kill you. It would blind you and obliterate you because He is as dangerous as He is good. That's the message on repeat throughout the Old Covenant. You cannot go into His presence without grave danger because of your sin. There was one day a year, and only one, where an individual in this Old Covenant time would annually and with great fear and trembling enter into the presence of God. It was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And of the millions in Israel, he alone could go beyond the veil and enter the throne room of God. And that only once a year. How could it be, you say? How could a sinner go in there and survive? It was not without the most elaborate and solemn of preparations. The day is described in Leviticus 16, and it starts in verse 2. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So he tells him, If he comes in here any time at all, he'll die. Why? Because I am here. It's a death sentence for anyone who comes in unprepared. Verse 3, but this is the way Aaron shall come into the holy place. And, and what follows in Leviticus 16 is one of the most elaborate and precise rituals in the whole of the Bible. Aaron, the high priest, is to get up in the morning, wash himself head to foot entirely before he puts on his priestly garments in exactly the prescribed way. He is forbidden, along with everybody else, from eating anything on this day. It's the one day of fasting commanded in the Old Testament. And he is to take a bull from his own herd, a bull that belongs to him, and sacrifice it and take the blood of that bull and then sprinkle it uh, on the altar and on the temple, on the tabernacle, on the inner room, and then go beyond the curtain and sprinkle it there in the Holy of Holies seven times. He was to do this to purify himself and to purify the sanctuary and to purify the altar. And once everything was made clean purified by blood, then he would do the whole thing over again before the Lord for atonement for the people. After that was all done, he would confess the sin over the scapegoat. It would be driven away, then he would wash himself again. And the whole point of this elaborate ceremony was to remind the people how difficult and dangerous and costly it is for sinners to approach the living God. In fact, some traditions say a rope was tied around the high priest's waist when he went in. Because if he sinned while he was in there, an unclean thought ran through his mind, sinned accidentally, sprinkled the blood uh, eight times instead of seven, he would drop dead. And since no one could go in and get him, they would have a rope to pull him out. The whole of the Old Testament system screams these two things. It is wonderful to be with God, but because of your sin, you are cut off from Him. There's no greater privilege or blessing than knowing God, than being His people. There's no greater danger than standing before Him in your sin. And maybe the clearest picture of this is in the construction of Solomon's temple. Listen to the description of the Holy of Holies, and especially of the doors leading into it in 1 Kings chapter 6. It says, in the inner sanctuary, he made, so the Holy of Holies, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits was the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the, one, from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits. 
And so was that of the other. That's, uh, that's 15 feet, I believe. And so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherub in the innermost part of the house, house of God, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that the wing of one touched the wall and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall and their wings touched each other in the middle of the house. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Around the walls of the house he carved and engraved figures of cherubim and of palm trees and of open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood the lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of, with olive wood and with carvings of cherubim and palm trees and of open flowers. And he lay, overlaid them all with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and the palm trees. This is the temple of God. This is where God dwells. And what does it look like? God is surrounded by palm trees and open flowers. It's a great golden garden, just like in Genesis chapter 2. Even the entrance, the two high pillars of bronze, they were designed to look like two great palm trees leading in. If you ever wondered if the garden was a temple, wonder no more. The temple is a reminder itself of the paradise that was lost. There are lampstands shaped like olive trees. There are decorations around with pomegranates and palms on the walls. But interspersed Throughout it all are cherubim, warrior angels warning that this garden is perfect and pure and not to be defiled. Just certainly the most imposing of all of the temple furnishings would have been the two massive cherubim standing guard in the Holy of Holies, watching over the ark. They, there they are, right? Fifteen feet tall, overlaid with gold, swords drawn on the ready to strike down anyone who would dare approach the Lord without being summoned or prepared. This is the difficulty of a sinner to draw near to God. They cannot do it in their sin. Their sin has made a separation between them and between Him. But worse than any kind of earthly separation is the separation from God for all eternity in hell. I mean, you, you think of it. Think of it for just a moment, right? Just think, if this is how careful God's people had to be, if this is how cut off and separated God's people were, those that He loved had to go through all of this just to approach Him, one of them approach Him for one day of the year, and only then under all of these stipulations, and if that's how they had approached, if there was that much danger for God's people, how much more will those who spurn the Lord be cut off and separated from Him? I mean, death for many, because broad is the gate that leads to destruction and there are many on it. Death for many will separate them from God forever in the place of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you know who takes people to that place? It's the angels of God. The guardians of His presence. They'll round up God's people from the four corners of the earth and they will round up those who are against God from the same four corners of the earth. But they will be cut off for all eternity without any hope at all. And listen, that would have been that would have been the fate of every single person in this room, but it won't be, will it? It won't be. We we sing songs and we rejoice because our home is in heaven. We sing, we'll sing it later about standing before the throne of God above. And far from trembling as we sing it, we sing it with gusto and we rejoice that we're going to be able to stand before God's throne. How, how can that be? What, what has changed so that what used to be the one thing nobody could do except for the high priest once a year filled with fear and trembling can now be something we can do all of the time while we rejoice over and over again like a broken record with so much humility 
The heart of the Father is revealed in Scripture. He wants to live with His people. He wants to have His dwelling among them, but they are too sinful and too unclean. They forget about God. They disobey His commands. They dishonor Him. They become in some places a stench to His nostrils. And he warns them over and over. He warns them of the coming judgment. He warns them of the fires of hell. He warns them with many curses. He tells them that the wages of sin is death. He warns them that they would turn and they would live. But he does more than just warn them. He does much more than just warn them because warnings cannot take away sin. Warnings, even when they are listened to, do not make you fit to enter into the presence of God. And God knows it. So He warns us, but He doesn't stop at warning us because warnings are not enough. Warnings cannot make a man right with God. So what does He do? He sends His only begotten Son and He sends Him to dwell or to tabernacle, which is the word John uses in John 1.1, with us. And He comes to open a way into that holy place for sinful people. He comes to propitiate God and save His people and remove the stain of their sin. He sends Christ so that God's wrath that would have been poured out upon unfit people entering into the Holy of Holies is not poured out on them, but on Himself. That's what he means when he says he sends his son to reconcile us to himself, to reconcile us to God, so that no longer will your sin make a separation between you and him. So that we can say, because of Christ, no longer has my sin cut me off. And when Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished, what was finished? What was the mission that Christ came to accomplish? Was it just to remove sin and then leave us wandering around? Was it just to set a good example, right? Just to make us saints? So I'm going to come, I'm going to make this people holy, and that's it. You know, we're going, positionally, they'll be like Adam and Eve, and we'll let them go. Is that really what you think he came to do? I remember a story of a man who was a painter. And he had a prized picture hanging over his mantle, one that he painted himself, one of a, a son that he had lost. It was his greatest work. And then one night, men broke in. And they searched the house. And of all the things they could take, they took this one painting. They stole the painting he had made of his son. Well, the man woke up. He saw the broken glass. He saw the picture missing. He calls the police. He explains what happened. A few days later, they contact him. They say, good news. We have apprehended the criminal. Justice will be served. We have fingerprints. We have DNA. We have video evidence. They are guilty. It's going to be an open and shut case. What's the man going to say? What's the painter going to say when he hears this news? He's going to say, well, that's all good and well. And I'm glad that you have caught them. And I'm glad that it will be an easy case. What about my painting? Have you found it? Do you, do you have it? Can you bring it back? And how disappointed would the father be if the answer was, Oh no, I'm sorry, sir. I don't think you'll ever get the painting back. Listen, at the cross, God didn't just work justice. And he didn't just send his son to take away sins. He sent His Son to bring us back to God again and to restore us and reconcile us so that we could walk with God again. It's like God said, go and make these people clean and pay for their sin and bring My image back. When He said it is finished, the sign of that separation. Right? The guardian at the gate. The veil in the temple. The veil of trees and scarlet and cherubs. God, in delight, took hold of that curtain in His own hands and He tore it from the top all the way down to the very bottom. Verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn into from the top to the bottom. 
And that great wall of separation that for so long had stood like an impassable fortification that was shielding God from sinful man and more sparing man from the devouring perfections of a just and holy God, it came crashing to the ground, torn in two, top to the bottom, so that now the holy place, the place where God dwells, the presence of God, no longer is it shielded and sanctioned off and kept hidden away. But because of Christ, not only can we go in, but God poured out His Spirit on His people and made His dwelling in us. No greater reconciliation could ever be conceived of. Listen, it would be one thing if the curtain was torn down and now if you wanted, you could travel to Jerusalem and go in and see the ark unafraid. That would be one thing and it would be great, but it's better than that. If God's presence came out and dwelled in our churches and in our meetings and, and so when we were here on Sunday morning for an hour, the presence of God was here. That would be an unspeakable privilege for us to receive, wouldn't it? But it's even better than that. See, God not only invites us to come in, and not only does He come out to meet us, but listen to this. 2 Timothy 1.14 Guard through the Holy Spirit that dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Or Ephesians 3.17 So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ dwells in us. And Ephesians 2.22 in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. God dwells in us in the Spirit. Do you see what happened when the curtain came down? The fullness of God came out and now dwells in every believer. Right? And you, young man, young, uh, young women, old men, old women, you live your entire life in the presence of God. And that's a statement, not a command. You do right now live, if you are in Christ, indwelled by Almighty God, and you are the temple of the living God. What an unspeakable privilege that God has done. It's not a garden. It's not a temple. It's you. That's what Paul says we are we have unspeakable treasures in jars of clay. Hebrews, the book, the book of Hebrews tells us, it says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has gone beyond the curtain on our behalf. Hebrews 9, 11-13 But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of if the blood of bulls and goats, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Or Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Stand back has now become draw near. Imagine the man fearful and cowering, unwilling to enter in. He's standing outside the temple courts. He's standing outside of Mount Sinai. He says, how can, how can I even be in the presence of this place, let alone go into it? Christian, do you live like this? Do you hear of the holiness of God? And you see your own sin? And you live your life as though Christ never came? Or do you think 
Oh, yes. Uh, I know He has forgiven me, but my sin is so great. He is so glorious. How? How could I ever draw near to Him? How could I receive mercy? The veil has been torn, and you are free to enter in. Christ Himself dwells in us. The sword of the cherub that was once drawn and pointed at you, now it's sheathed, and instead its owner extends his hand to welcome you in and help you over the threshold because the danger is no more. And all that remains for the believer is the blessing unrestrained and without condition for those who are in Christ. He has absorbed all of the wrath. All of the danger has fallen on Him and for His people all that is left is the pure and inviting, approachable mercy of God. That's not because God has changed, but because He's changed everyone who comes to Him. You come unclean, you leave clean. You come sick, you leave well. You come broken, you leave complete. You come in the, in the throes of death, you leave with eternal life. You come to Christ hopeless on the verge of death, you leave with death-defying assurance. You come sinners and you leave saints. You come defiled and you leave pure. When you come to Christ, you do come unfit to enter into His presence, but you leave with the promise of the beatific vision. Do you know what that is? It's that one day you will see the very face of God. And now we enter in with confidence, not because of us, but because of the finished work of Christ. I'm reminded of a picture of the 35th president, JFK. He's sitting in the Oval Office, you know, sitting behind his desk. It's a place where dignitaries in the world, kings, presidents, prime ministers, all kinds of people, they would tremble to go in there. It would be a, a great and almost inconceivable thing for any of us to ever find ourselves, ourselves in that place. And there in the picture, the, the desk, the front of it's open, and, and you can see in by the president's feet, the most powerful man in the world, you see his children playing, unconcerned at his feet. That's us. We're children playing at the feet of God. But that's not all that happened when the veil was torn. In the book of Hebrews, that it tells us that, that all of those things that God commanded to be made, the ark, the lampstand, the court, the tabernacle, all of it, it was a shadow of a heavenly reality. It was like a scale model. That's why he warns Moses to build it exactly as he tells them. It represents something greater. The cherubim were the host of heaven. The ark, the very throne of God. But what was the veil a symbol or a shadow of? Again, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Do you see what the author of Hebrews says? Christ is the veil. And it is through His broken body we are declared fit to enter in. It's by His sacrifice that we can enjoy the presence of God. And it is through Him and Him alone. The, the broken Christ, the crucified Christ, the way and the truth and the light. He is the door into the Holy of Holies and the only way anyone will ever dwell with God secure again. Because everyone's going to stand before Him one day. Everyone is going to again find themselves in the presence of God. And for those people who have put their trust in Him, who have been covered by Christ, it will be the greatest, most wonderful longing of their heart fulfilled. But for everyone who does not, it will be their greatest and most awful nightmare come true. What is it going to be for you when you stand before Him to give an account? Will you be ready? Will you in that moment have been reconciled to God? Or 
will you be found unclean and unprepared to enter in? And the angels will come and they'll carry you away from the presence of God forever. That will be the end of every human being. Either you have been made clean by Christ or you go with your own offering. And your own offering is not enough. Well, this morning two paths have been laid before you. One path that leads to life and the other that leads to death. One that is a path of blessing and the other is a, is a warning. My concern is that you would be blessed and that you would not be destroyed. So if you're here this morning and you don't know who Christ is, you say, I've heard of Him before. I've heard here, but I don't. I've never followed Him. Repent and believe and surrender to Christ. Pass through the narrow gate and He will make you fit to enter into the presence of Almighty God. Let's pray. Lord God, You have made one way and one way is more than we deserve. But You have been gracious towards us. You have made it so that we can dwell with You again. You have put an end to our sin that we might enter in to live with You. And Lord, it is a good thing that You have done. I pray for everyone here that if they don't know You this morning, this would be for them the day of salvation. That when they would, they would pass from being defiled to being made pure by putting their trust in You. And I pray for Your people that they would not live as though Christ never died, but that they would go to You and seek the forgiveness of sins and that they would know that, Lord, like Esther, the, the scepter is always extended. We are always welcomed in, not because of anything we have done, but because You have made us fit and righteous in Your sight because of Christ. Thank You, Lord, that now we can dwell and live in the presence of Almighty God. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.